Romans chapter 10. I've been assigned a topic uh, that's typically found in the theological category um, that is often called the doctrine of reprobation. What does the death of Jesus mean for the unbelieving world? Uh, Or to be more specific, what are the benefits, if any, of Christ's atoning work to those who are not atoned for? That is, sinners who will not profess saving faith in Jesus. Um, Like many who have historically wrestled with this question, I come um, with a, a, a theological premise, a working premise about how it is individuals come to be saved. Um, what Jared taught on last night in the first session is often called particular redemption, sometimes called definite atonement. For those uh, of you who play on the court um, where um, you know, there's really almost uh, two sides, right? like Calvinism and Arminianism, um, this would be the L in the Calvinistic explainer, uh, the acronym TULIP, limited atonement. In a nutshell, that viewpoint is this. Jesus didn't atone for every individual sinner universally, but atoned only for the elect. And so really the question that I've been assigned is this. Working from that premise, what is the benefit of the atonement for the non-elect? But I will say, if you don't play on that court, you reject both those categories as insufficient. Do you think that there are other options that make more sense of the biblical teaching on those issues? Or if you're on the court, but you're on the Arminian side of the court, I don't think the question goes away. Um, I think you may ask the question differently, but the question still remains. You may ask it in this way. In what way can we legitimately say that Christ paid for the sins of people who never believe and thus make their own payment in the punishment of hell? So just speaking personally, I reject the idea that God would punish a sinner twice that Christ would pay for their sins and then they would have to pay also for their sins. In, in, in my understanding of the scriptures, if Christ has paid for my sins, that payment is made. It is finished. It is a, I am atoned for. But if you believe, for instance, that Jesus died for every individual who ever lived, then the question remains for you because you do, um, I'm assuming you're not a universalist, that is, that you don't think everybody gets to go to heaven then, So there are some people who reject Christ and thus go to hell. So if you believe Jesus died for them, in what way can we say that Jesus' death benefits them if they end up in hell nevertheless? Well, since um, historically speaking, it has been mostly theologians on what we call the Reformed side of that court who have wrestled with this question, I thought I would cheat a little bit and just go see what they say. (laughs) Jared sent me the topic, cross for the world, what the death of Jesus means for the world, and I was like, Okay, all right. And uh, I realize that the bigger, <laughs> bigger brains than mine have spent more than a few weeks on the question. <laughs> uh, so let's be honest, really a week on the question is about the time that I've been on it. And I, you know, there's some, there's some really, you know, there's guys who spent their lives sort of, you know, examining this question. So I dug out some old books and I, I looked up some old sermons on the internet and mainly <laughs> I came out with nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> A nugget here and there, and I'm sure that I, I, I missed some really big sources. But here's what here's a summation of mostly what I found. I was talking to Jared about this previously. Um, what you find is people saying, oh, there are definite benefits to the non-elect from Christ's crucifixion. And so I read things like that. I'm like, all right, here we go. Here comes the, come the answers. And they would say that they are numerable and substantial. All right, here we go. And uh, let me have them. And then they say, but let's move on to other topics on there. <laughs> <laughs> they move on. And I'm thinking, oh, man, you, like, you left me hanging. I found one web page um, that promised to compile all the things. Like, they were going to do the heavy lifting for me. Like, all of the excerpts from all of the big dogs in history who have spoken to this question all compiled on one web page. And so I get to that page, and I start scrolling down through those quotes. And most of the quotes did exa- exactly that. They affirmed that there are benefits in the atonement to the unbeliever, but then they neglected to list what most of those benefits actually were. Um, it reminded me of uh, a few years ago, I was preaching through the book of Galatians in my church in Vermont, and um, I got to chapter 3, and, there, and one verse in particular, verse 20 in, in Galatians chapter 3, um, was giving me fits. So, you know, I come across it in the text, and I like to do um, the bulk of my exegetical work before I go to the commentaries, precisely for that reason, so I'm not stealing but, you know, borrowing after the fact, right? So, or to check my work. 
And I got to Galatians 3, verse 20, which says, um, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And I just, I couldn't make heads or tails of that. I couldn't figure out what, what Paul meant by that and, and how it fit in the context and, yeah, um, and that sort of thing. And so I started looking up, you know, the commentaries to see what they said. And, and everybody was like, they were just avoiding the verse. Even Martin Luther and his commentary in Galatians, which to this day is, is one of my favorite books and a very influential book for me, Luther just like skips over the verse, like it doesn't even exist, like it's not even there. Well, I felt like that in preparing this message. So I couldn't cheat. I don't know if you're going to find my answers to this odd question satisfactory, but at least we'll be in the Word together, right? So let's look at Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 13. I'll reference some verses later and previous also, but this will be our focus text. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. On the contrary, what does it say? The message is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. Let's thank our Heavenly Father for it and just ask him to keep us away from those rocks as we try to bring this ship to stop. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you have not left us silent. You have not left us ignorant, but have communicated with us. We may not have everything that we want to know, but we certainly have everything we need to know. Um, to know you, to know your son, to experience the powerful work of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would, um, as last night, um, keep my words from being um, unhelpful. I ask that you would help my words to adorn the gospel of your son. Um, in all of this, what, what, what can be a difficult subject, sometimes a confusing subject, a complicated subject, I pray that you would impress upon us the grace that you have poured out through the offering of the sacrifice of your son, Christ Jesus. And it's in his great name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, most of you um, are, are likely somewhat familiar with Paul's letter to the Romans. Um, it is, in, in large respects, what we might call the masterpiece within the masterpiece. I know it's, it can be um, difficult sometimes to single out a particular book of the Bible or passage of the Bible as being somewhat better than others because the entirety of Scripture is inspired, authoritative, inerrant. Um, and yet there are places where we really begin to see um, the biblical writers play as it were. And so if Galatians is sort of the succinct kind of punchy version of Paul's explication of the gospel in relation to um, the rejection of works righteousness, the rejection of the flesh, um, the gift of salvation by grace through faith, Romans is where he really just sort of paints this broad, epic, panoramic scope of all of the implications of that message throughout history. And so he begins with almost this kind of moral philosophy and talking about um, a, a, a creation, God's plan through the covenants, um, how um, just even naturally, even people who are darkened, who are ignorant, who are dead, spiritually dead, have at least, because they're made in the image of God, some sense, some reality that there is something out there, that God exists, that they are somewhat um, denying internally or spiritually um, subverting in themselves. And then he goes, on, he goes on to talk about some of the covenantal history and, and you know, bring up some of the patriarchs and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on and so forth. And he's painting in, in, in big strokes, you know, showing us you know, sort of the mountain range of God's historic faithfulness. 
And as we sort of turn the corner then from Romans chapter 7 through 9 and then now into Romans chapter 10, he begins to kind of narrow down the focus. He, he's putting us closer and closer on the ground to sort of begin to speak about how that big message, the mountaintops, the Matterhorn of God's grace, now suddenly has impact in, 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 the, um, in the valleys, as it were. And so in Romans chapter 9, he, he kind of hones in. It, you know, it's one of the more, if we can say, controversial chapters. Um, lots of debate about what's going on in Romans chapter 9. Is he talking about election? Is he talking about simply corporate election or individual election? He's using the example of Jacob and Esau. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. He says things like, um, the Lord gives mercy to whomever he wills, and the Lord hardens whomever he wills. He says this salvation, this justification, this election, it doesn't depend on human exertion or human will, but on God's mercy. He says some even more provocative things like, doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump a vessel for dishonorable use as he does for honorable use? And then when we open into Romans chapter 10, and remember, Paul doesn't know he's writing chapters, like these numbers were put in later, but as just as a helpful organizer, as we spill into Romans chapter 10, then the subject is getting more personal, more relational. You'll notice from this point on, he speaks more of personal ministry, practical application, church life, largely beginning in chapter 12, but this chapter really kind of marks that turning point. And you can sense that Paul is wrestling with this question in a non-academic manner. I think that's a large part of our problem when we come to these questions of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, of election, justification, and grace, and faith, predestination, all of those sorts of things, is we approach it simply with our mind and not with our heart. And Paul is a member of Israel. He is an exemplary Jew. He is a product of the best Jewish teaching and training. And despite his mission to the Gentile world, he feels keenly inside of him this question, how can Christ be a benefit to even religious people who reject him. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. Well, this leads us to my first point. In what way does Christ's atoning work benefit the unbelieving world? I think one of the first ways is this. The cross of Christ clarifies the universal human problem. The cross of Christ clarifies the universal human problem. What is it that we are searching for, longing for, anxious about, seeking after, desiring? What is it that will ultimately complete us and satisfy us? Fill that void in our heart. What is our major malfunction? Paul says, despite all their learning, despite all their religiosity, despite all of their history, despite all of their heritage, all of the grace that's been shown to them for eons, they are not saved. Verse 3, they're ignorant of the righteousness of God, and they attempt to establish their own righteousness. They're ignorant. Like every other human, they know something is wrong. They see there's a problem out there, but they don't know what the answer is. There's a popular country song right now, and I only know this because I started listening to country music about a year ago. I think it's just getting old. I don't know what the explanation is. I used to hate country music and make fun of people who listen to it, and now my kids make fun of me for listening to country music. And there's a song. It's like, I believe most people are good. I'm like, this is terrible theology. <laughs> like, what world do you live in? This song is terrible. It's evidence itself that your premise is faulty. <laughs> self-refuting. <laughs> a lot of people believe that. Ah, oh, deep down, everybody's really good. And yet, we spend so much time trying to figure out, why are people so bad? I think if you pulled 100 people off the street, just randomly, and said, you think people are good or bad? They probably would say, I think people are fundamentally good. And then you just follow up and say, then why is the world so messed up? You might get 100 different answers. Well, you know, poor upbringing, perhaps, they, you know, they lived in bad environments that influenced them. Well, where did that bad environment come from? Well, I mean, you, you, you keep trying to trace it back. What's the epicenter of the brokenness, of the evil 
in the world. Right after September 11th, 2001, we had this sort of like, um, there was a cultural moment where the kind of, the widespread, just sort of live and let live kind of seeking became this sort of laser-like focus on the eruption of the real, of the evil of that moment, where people began asking more publicly and more practically with their lives the question, what is wrong, how do we fix it? And so you even had, um, uh, you know, someone subscriber to Entertainment Weekly, and, and I remember sort of the issues after that. They're asking questions like, can we make violent movies still? Do horror movies even make sense anymore? It feels gross. It, it feels somewhat wrong. They're experiencing a sense of conviction that after this great tragedy, this cold-blooded act of terrorism, that we have to, in some way, respond with a sense of morality. It feels immoral to glorify violence in response to that now. The churches, especially in New York City, but the churches began to swell with attendees. Why would that be? Because people are wrestling with the moral question. But it didn't, I mean, it's just a matter of months where everything just kind of went back to normal. If anything, post 9-11, movies have gotten more violent. This ignorance ruled the day. People keep on searching. And in fact, not even religion will solve the problem. Paul says basing your answer to the fundamental problem simply on religion is attempting to establish your own righteousness. And the gospel tells us that righteousness can only come from Christ himself. A couple of years ago, I was um, in Minneapolis um, speaking at a conference and was meeting after the, the conference closed one evening, was meeting some pastors um, in a different part of town for um, a late dinner. And so I, I um, hired a cab to take me over there, and it was about a 35-minute drive. It was a little bit of ways to get there, and I began speaking with my cab driver. Um, he told me his name was Tokar, and he said, you know, like the song. And I was like, Tokar? I've never heard a song. He was like, yeah, you know, I'm a midnight Tokar, he said. <laughs> I was like, it was like... <laughs> Probably the only Steve Miller band quoting Muslim that you could ever find. <laughs> Tokar the Muslim, and by his own admission, kind of a nominal Muslim. Um, and as we began to kind of tease out, I'd ask him, you know, we engage very quickly in a theological conversation. I don't know if you've had a lot of spiritual conversations with Muslims, um, but they have zero hang-ups about talking about religion. You can actually get to the, the gospel quite quickly um, with them. So, Began to get his story, asked about his life, asked about his family, and, and Tokar, you know, he didn't go to mosque regularly. He still sort of believed, um, but as I kind of teased out some of his spirituality, it felt more um, almost like the, um, the Muslim, you know, the Islamic version of Joel Osteen, right? Just hope for the best, things will work out. And Tokar was in the midst of some um, really difficult family dynamics. He and his wife, um, you know, hadn't really had a strong relationship in a very long time, and they had one child left at home, and he said, you know, I really believe that once our, you know, our last child leaves the home, that she'll divorce me. She's just waiting for um, our home to be empty before she does that. And, um, and, and so I just asked him, you know, so like, what is your life like? Like, how do you deal with that? How difficult must that be? And he said, you know, you just get up, you just take it one day at a time, and you just try to hope for the best and, um, you know, put good out into the world. And, you know, just all the cliches that, you know, someone might give. And I said, well, what are your religious leaders, what do your teachers say ab about that situation? And he basically echoed the same thing, that, you know, what can you do? You just try to be a good person and, and hope that good things will happen to you in response as you put good things out there. And then I said, and that's just what you do for the rest of your life? You just try to be a good person? And he said, yeah, basically that's what you try to do. And I said, and then, and then what happens when, when your life is over? And he said, well, you know, you, you stand before God there in paradise, and, and there's a great big scale. And, I mean, you don't have to be Muslim to believe this. Lots of people believe this is how it works. There's a great big scale. And he said, all, all of my good deeds will be on one side, and all of my sins or all of my bad deeds will be on the other side. And whichever side weighs the heaviest, that will determine whether I get to enter paradise or not. I just kind of let it hang there for a little bit. And, and so I asked him this this guy who's struggling with life, just trying to get there, just trying to put enough good stuff out there that in some kind of Islamic karmic retribution would return to him goodness, I just asked him, do you think you have more good deeds than you do bad deeds? And he sort of paused for a moment and he said, no, I don't think I do. And I said, man, I don't think I do either. 
So, like, if that's the answer, you and I at least are really in trouble. And I think most people are in trouble if, if that's the answer. So I took him as far as I was able up to the wall of his moral philosophy, essentially to show that both of us, not just him because he's a Muslim, but both of us, neither one of us can be good enough. This is what Paul is saying in verse 5. Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. In other words, if you believe salvation comes by acting right, do you realize how right you got to act to get salvation? If your justification is built on works righteousness, you're going to have to be perfect to get that justification. But glory to God, but God. As we read in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Abraham, we know, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is the forecast of what the theologians call the imputation of Christ's righteousness to any sinner who will stop their self-salvation projects and place their belief in Christ himself. It's the next deep level of grace in the gospel. The gospel that I heard growing up was a gospel su sufficient for salvation, but as Michael talked about, it didn't help me really with everyday life, but just kind of that decisive moment, standing before God, what are you going to say? So what I believed was, because I had repented of my sin and put my faith in Christ, professed faith in Christ, he forgave me all of my sin. But in a sense, and I don't remember anyone really communicating this, it was somewhat implicit. By not saying more, by not going further into the gospel, really what they were communicating is this. You're forgiven, blank slate, now try really hard. Let you get a do-over. Which is why so many of us prayed that prayer over and over and over and over again, trying to get that slate clean over and over and over and over again. When really the fullness or the... The, the greater fullness of the biblical teaching is not simply that when you put your faith in Christ, that slate is wiped clean. That is true. But it's not slate wiped clean, try again, let's get it right this time. It's slate wiped clean and then inscribed on your heart the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imputation. You are counted righteous in Christ. So justification is not simply um, you know, just as if I'd never sinned. It's also just as if I'd always obeyed. Wow. Because Christ's perfect obedience is now credited to me through my faith. When Tokenauer and I pulled up to the restaurant where I was to meet my friends, he turned the meter off, thankfully, <laughs> and we spent another 30 minutes talking about theology. And he didn't pray to receive Christ, at least not with me there in, in that moment, but I, I did pray for him. I hope afterward that the seed planted would blossom into saving faith for him. But he has the answer now. He may get to that place and expect there's going to be a big scale there. And when there's not, he can't say he wasn't told. The answer to his wrestling, his longing, is in Christ's atoning work. And hearing that from God, even if you reject it, is a gift of clarity. Honesty is always a blessing. Clarity is always a blessing. And the cross of Christ clarifies the universal human problem. The cross essentially says, this is the epicenter of all of the injustice, all of the fallenness, all of the messed upness of the world. It is the sin that disconnects you from God. And by sending my son to atone for sinners, I am declaring this is the problem, sin, and it requires death. Secondly, the cross of Christ commissions the church in merciful service to the world. The cross of Christ commissions the church in merciful service to the world. In a way, this is like saying the special grace of the cross is the explainer for the common grace that's given to the world. Rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. There are so many good gifts that God gives to his creatures, saved and unsaved, that we get to enjoy. I think of this every time I, I see, you know, last night you know, I spoke of my love for movies and how I, you know, I didn't watch the Oscars this year, but 
I go and I see movies or I read books that aren't written by believers, and I say, oh, man, like, the gleams of common grace are all over this thing. The themes of redemption are all over this thing. Like, they don't know where that's coming from, and they're not pointing to the actual storyline. They don't know the Jesus who, un, who explains all of this, but you can see these gleams, as C.S. Lewis calls, gleams of celestial beauty falling on the jungle of filth and imbecility. That's what Lewis called myth, which is what we're rehearsing every time we go see a superhero movie. That's just our new mythology. And there's gleams of celestial truth in there. Not the articulation of the gospel, of course. It's the representation from darkened minds, from ignorant minds. But you just see, oh man, if they only knew the, the answer to this story, if they only knew what this really pointed to. This is what Lewis Burkhoff writes in his Systematic Theology. Though Christ suffered and died only for the purpose of saving the elect, many benefits of the cross do actually accrue to the benefit of those who do not accept Christ by faith. Okay, well, Louis, tell me, what are they? Well, I'll give you a sentence. The blessings of common grace also result from the atoning work of Christ. Well, you might say, wasn't there a lot of common grace before the cross of Christ? And the answer is yes, there was. But just as the gospel of Jesus Christ, sinless life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection marked the historical fulfillment of the promise that the patriarchs believed in retroactively, so the gospel of Jesus Christ marks the historical reason for the common grace enjoyed by the non-elect in the days of the patriarchs retroactively. Long sentence. If you didn't get it all, don't worry. It's not that important. I'll summarize it. In other words, both the salvation of the elect before Christ and the common grace enjoyed by the non-elect before Christ were purchased by Christ. Paul sort of hints at this here in verse 8. The message is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Sometimes I'm watching a, a film, and I think, ah, oh, it's right there. There's some redemption narrative of some kind, some selfless sacrifice, why through which people are rescued or redeemed. Gosh, I see it in Taken. Anyone fans of Taken? They can keep making Taken movies. They're getting increasingly ridiculous. I'll, I'll see them all. But in the first one especially, I'll tell you, I almost cried at the end of Taken. And it was a particular line. Do you remember when he shows up on the boat? Those of you who've seen it. He shows up on the boat to rescue his daughter after all that. I'll tear down Paris if I have to. But then he gets to the boat. And he finally sees his daughter face to face, and she says, you came for me. I'm a dad of daughters, so maybe that has something to do with it. But, I mean, it's just an action movie. But in that moment. Or how about Hugo, adaptation from Martin Scorsese of a famous graphic novel. There's a moment where the orphan boy, who's been hiding out in the train station, and the gruff, kind of grouchy toy maker who has a hidden secret that relates to films, actually. And the train station comes, and he's getting ready to apprehend the orphan boy and send him to the orphanage, which is bad news. And the grouchy, gruff toy maker steps in between and grabs the orphan and says, this child belongs to me. It's right there in front of you. The message is so close. It's right there. Paul prefaces this thinking, of course, by highlighting the religious striving of his immediate audience. This theological question of going up to heaven, coming down to the abyss. And he's contrasting that striving with actual saving faith. And he's saying about even these religious unbelievers, specifically his Jewish countrymen, who do not believe in Jesus. The message is right Every time you slit that lamb's throat, it was right there in front of you. You could smell it in your nostrils. It's embedded in your scriptures. It's in your creeds and confessions. It's in your traditions and rituals, but you can't see it. Well, there's a corollary there for the non-Jewish unbelieving world around us. Yes, the Western world has become post-Christian, increasingly so in specific portions of the West. 
And yet the message is so near, it's all around, mainly because the cross has purchased millions of sinners to Christ himself, who, gathered into Christ's body called the church, serve as salt and light in the world. The cross has commissioned the church in all kinds of merciful service to the world. I just want to list some things. Maybe we can rehearse some of these things together. Mission work around the world where not only is the gospel shared, but medical work is performed, and infrastructural rebuilding, providing clean water, basic hygiene, literacy. This is one of those things that's maddening to me when the secular world, in particular Hollywood, begins to pat itself on the back for its humanitarian efforts. And sometimes, you know, they have these press conferences, and and sometimes they even chastise, quote-unquote, conservatives or what have you. Where were you when all this stuff was going on? And you want to say, you know what? Christians have been in Africa and Asia and Latin America for literally centuries. They just aren't calling press conferences about it. They were there long before you were. But the rise of hospitals, look at how many hospitals Christians and, and Christian communities have created. Religious orders and denominations have established medical centers health clinics, near and far. Many of the earliest scientific discoveries, explorations that led to the rise of healthcare and vaccines and hygiene that has saved millions of lives were conducted by Christians, sometimes monks, in awe of God's creation and digging deep, wanting to just know more. God, you made such a wonderful world. I want to know more about it. How does this work? What does this look like deep down inside? What might we learn from that? How about the grounding of laws and justice? Christian values in the West especially have contributed to a stability and an endurance unmatched in other parts of the world. Is there lots of injustice here? Absolutely there is. And we should work against that injustice to serve to to mitigate it or hopefully even eliminate it if possible. But Christian sinners have done far less damage to nations than atheistic sinners have. Sometimes you hear the sort of cliche trotted out, religion is responsible for so much death in the world. You say, well, Perhaps, but it depends on what kind of religion you're talking about. We can't deny that Christians have been responsible for many deaths in the world, but when you start adding up the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Maos and the Pol Pots, what happens in China and North Korea, it pales in comparison. Speaking of justice, we're accustomed to hearing about Christian support of slavery, and we cannot whitewash our history there. In fact, I I would even say people who professed Christ and held or otherwise supported slavery slavery are in a way worse than others because they should have known better. And in fact, then they would go on to sort of spiritualize their abuse of other human beings made in the image of God, quote Bible verses in support of their slavery. But while slavery was perpetrated by Christian and non-Christian alike, it was largely Christians who led the abolitionist movement refuting the institution of slavery with the truths of the Bible and its implications for natural law and societal stability. Speaking of justice again, it was Christians at the forefront of the civil rights movement in its most formative stages. Preachers and reverends and, honestly, black church ladies who led the marches and the sit-ins and the bus boycotts and withstood the hatred of the unbelieving world to protest unjust color laws in this country. It's churches that have often provided stability and refuge for those impacted by poverty in inner city and poor rural environments. I was fascinated once. I, um, uh, in a previous life, I, um, I did a lot of freelance kind of research and writing for um, uh, uh, folks. And Ed Stetzer, who used to be the head of Lifeway Research now at Wheaton College, um, I was working for him. And I was in on a conference call with him and a missiologist having this conversation. I was kind of recording the thing. And I learned so much just in the conversation. They began to talk about how when the gospel impacts an immigrant community, and they're speaking specifically in the United States, immigrant community comes, they tend to set up sort of shop. This is why there are large immigrant populations in specific cities, because someone kind of sets up, this This is the place to come when you get out. And so those cities begin to develop, and, 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 and they need resources. They need, um, you know, um, societal help, and sometimes, you know, justice issues addressed. And the gospel then will impact, as Christians take seriously, taking the gospel to the nations who are even next door to us. And when churches become established and the gospel begins to spread, 
Stetzer and this missiologist are going to talk about, um, they use the phrase social uplift because the gospel creates order out of chaos. And it compels, for instance, families to stay together. And a, a family that stays together with a mom and dad who are together, living together, is so much more stable and creates more of a legacy of stability for children growing up than a broken household or single-parent household. The help of the drug addiction issue or churches responding to poverty. Last year, a couple years ago, very popular book, New York Times bestseller, a lot of people read it, J.D. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy. Anybody read Hillbilly Elegy? And Vance, it's, it's interesting because you don't finish the book knowing quite where Vance is spiritually. He says something later in the book about reconnecting with his faith. I'm not sure exactly what that means. But in the middle of the book, he talked about when he was a kid and he went to go live with his biological father. And he didn't quite believe. He tried to do the good religious thing. He would say, I didn't really believe, but I was being religious. And my father was religious and took his stepkids to church. And he said, living with them during that time was the most stable period of my life. Because... There was a mom and a dad in the house, and we had dinner together every night, and he took us to church every Sunday, and he said it was strange. Like, he highlighted some of the religious beliefs, and it was a little, it was a little out there, but he just talked about the stability of that, the order of that. There are so many common grace benefits to the world. We could go on and on and on and on. The strange and provocative truth is this. As broken and as evil, I don't know if you ever think about this, but as broken and as evil as the world is because of sin, the world is actually a less broken and less evil place than it could have been because there are Christians in it. Isn't that interesting? There are people in this evil world who are redeemed by Christ's atoning work, and we should shudder to think how bad off we'd be if there weren't any. The fact that there are sinners being sanctified in almost every corner of the earth right now is far preferable to no one being sanctified in any place in the world. Now, obviously, none of these benefits amount to the greatest benefit, which is, of course, eternal life. Nevertheless, God in his loving kindness has shown forbearance with the reprobate and a patience in affording them a life full of potential and promise. And he doesn't owe any of us one second of it. It's in this way that the cross benefits even unbelievers. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, For this reason we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those of us who believe. Okay, hold on a second, Paul. Savior of all people, but especially people who believe. Now, unless you're a universalist, you got to make sense of this. The cross gives shape to our service, the labor and striving that he talks about there. That those of us who are especially saved would labor and strive for unbelievers in such a way that they might see Jesus if it were possible. And see him as more than the savior of their physical life. But of their spiritual life as well. A lot of people like Jesus. They admire Jesus in the same way they might admire Gandhi. I mean, he's a good example as far as examples go. Some of the stuff he, he teaches is really inefficient. I think this is why Lewis at one point said, if I weren't a Christian, I'd probably be a Hindu. It's like, I'm a Christian because I believe this is true, but it's, it's not the easiest religion. <laughs> the incarnation, which we sort of focused on last night in Colossians chapter 2, is, yes, the work of salvation. That's, that's the primary function. But it's also an example. It's an example this way. It's an example of selfless sacrifice. Christ embodying the pain of unbelievers and sacrificially serving to end it, that unbelievers would become believers. There is the moral example shown to us by Christ, what's often called the, more, the uh, exemplar, quote-unquote, theory or facet of the atonement. So really what we're saying is that the atoning work of Christ on the cross demonstrates an extreme act of selflessness which both gives the entire world a model for how to treat others and clarifies the problem of even this common grace not quite solving the longing inside of them. The message is near them, verse 8. It might even be in their mouth and in their heart, but it isn't their personal faith. It's not in their heart the right way. 
They have not confessed with their mouths that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead. So they're not saved. What we are saying is that the atonement does lots of wonderful things for the reprobate except atonement. And common grace is great, and our world would be worse without God providentially and promiscuously dispensing it every millisecond of every day. But millions of people shown extraordinary grace every day still die and go to hell. And so the greatest good, the greatest good that the church can do for the world is, the end of verse 8, proclaim this message of faith. The cross of Christ clarifies the universal human problem. The cross of Christ commissions the church in merciful service to the world. And thirdly and finally, the cross of Christ commends the common grace of the free offer of special grace. The cross of Christ commends the common grace of the free offer of special grace. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Paul writes, God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate this righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. In other words, you have sinners who deserve immediate wrath. The clarity of the problem and the follow through. Wages of sin is death. Now I will kill you. That's what we deserve. And Paul is saying, this is what God said. You're a sinner. You deserve to die. I'm going to be patient with you. That you might hear the message you need. In chapter 9, just one chapter previous, verse 22, Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, yeah, but also to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction? For this reason, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Peter says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to salvation. Now, what do you do with that? Calvinists are really uncomfortable right now. (laughs) All doesn't mean all. Well, shut up just for a second. God is being so patient with unbelievers. He has shown them so much grace already. Because of our sin, we all deserve not even to see the light of day outside our mother's womb. Or the moment that our conscience is darkened by indwelling sin, he could have taken us out, and yet he has been so patient. Specifically, Paul is speaking about Israel, who has been given so much, seen so much, heard so much, experienced so much, and just as remarkable as their unbelief, despite all of that, Even more remarkable still is God's long-suffering, loving kindness, despite all of that. You you and I aren't that long-suffering. Man, I have tried and tried and tried. I'm done. I have reached my limit with you. And so we note how Paul begins this chapter. My heart's desire is that they be saved. Even the vessels of wrath, like you just said one chapter ago, Paul, that God has created some vessels for dishonorable use. In other words, like there's nothing they can do about it. They're, they're, they're not elect. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I pray that God would save them all. It's my heart's desire. And this is how he proceeds. We're, we're going to read it. We're not going to look at it really closely. But if you just kind of look down at your Bible, you see in verses 14 and following in the chapter, That's how he proceeds also. How beautiful it is when we share the gospel with them. Because they can't believe unless they hear it. And they can't hear it unless we preach it. And we can't preach unless we're sent to preach it. Here's the other problem, in fact, that we face. In addition to this fact that all the benefits from the atonement to the reprobate do not include actual atonement, none of these stated benefits will impress the reprobate one bit. You ever been sharing the gospel? You say, man, he showed you so much grace already. The fact that you're alive and breathing right now, that's an act of grace from God. That doesn't really impress him, does it? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's been pretty good to me so far. It doesn't really work that way, does it? 
The only people who can see how Christ's work on the cross helps the unbelieving world are those who believe. You're on this side of it going, oh my word, can you just see how much grace? Or maybe you've done it for your own life. Some of you have that kind of testimony. Man, I should have died when I was 16, acting like a fool. God should have taken me out. I was terrible, terrible to my parents, terrible to my friends. I was an awful person. I should have been killed. And God was so gracious to bring me to this point where I would actually be a believer in him right now. And I think this is part of what drives Paul's anxiety for the salvation of the lost and why he's brought us down into Romans 10 from the 30,000-foot view to the ground level. He is, in effect, saying, yes, I know in the economy of heaven, in the immense inscrutable wisdom of the triune Godhead, only those elected to salvation believe. I just wrote all of that. I'm not denying it. I absolutely affirm it. The non-elect will never believe. I'm not denying that. But I want people to be saved. And from our view down here, we have no idea who the elect and the non-elect are. I think in general, just to defend you, Calvinists, after I picked on you, let me defend you, and then I'm going to pick on you again. I think in general, Calvinists get a bad rap when it comes to this consideration about evangelism. I think it's a stereotype that to affirm Reformed theology is to stifle evangelism. In fact, some of the most prolific and passionate evangelists I know subscribe to Reformed theology. And I even think historically, when you look at the towering figures in, in, in mission, and certainly in theology, who were evangelists and missiologists, you see Reformed theology in their teaching and preaching. But I think there may be, I mean, the reason their stereotypes are stereotypes is because there's sometimes a kernel of truth in there. It may be graceless to embrace it and broad brush people with it, but sometimes there's a kernel of truth. Do we confuse God's purpose in election with our purpose in evangelism? I think our flesh is bent that way. Honestly, I think every person, because we're all sinners, is looking for an out, right? So your out may be different, but the Calvinist out is sometimes sort of like, eh, God's going to sort it out. But this isn't how Paul thought about it. My heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I'm reminded of this story. It's often attributed to Charles Spurgeon, who um, famously said Calvinism is the gospel. No, Charles, it's not. But you can't deny his Calvinistic credibility, okay? So that's, that's what I'm saying. He went beyond. Calvin says, if the Lord had gone and put a yellow stripe up the back of every elect person, I'd go up and down the street lifting shirt tails and preach the gospel to every yellow striped person I found. But he doesn't do that. Therefore, I will preach the gospel to all men freely and call all men to repent of their sin and believe. It's the universal call. Christ's atoning work is sufficient for all, yet effectual for some. But from the ground level, you and I don't know that. In fact, we run into a lot of problems when we start trying to decide that guy must not be elect. Maybe you're not elect. You ever think about that? I mean, when I look in the scriptures, the guys who were really deciding who's in and out were the guys who were out. Paul's passion was for conversion of those he reckoned even non-elect. Agonized for them. Anxious for them. We can't tell. Some of the people we've written off are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I'm convinced. I was reminiscing about this last night with some of the guys. When I, um, I, start, when I started out in, in ministry about 23 years ago, I was in student ministry, a church plant in Houston, had a very small youth group, variety of kids, most of them churchy kids. I had this one kid, this one boy, his name was David, in, in, in my youth group, and he was, he was the worst kid. Not just compared to my youth kids, if he was in your youth group, in your youth group he'd probably be the worst kid there too. Um, and he had a lot, a lot of reasons for that. So David came from a broken home. He lived with his father, actually, who was an alcoholic, not a believer, alcoholic, verbally abusive, an older brother who was not a believer. And so he just had a rough life. There, there was no mom showing him love, no dad showing him love. He just was so rough around the edges. Didn't know how to talk to girls, just couldn't sit still, all of, all of, all of those things. But uh, a friend from school was, um, you know, his family came to our church, and so his friend brought, and so the youth group became kind of like his family. And he'd show up, and I'd have to always pull him aside and say, look, you can't, 
you can't talk to you know girls like that. You, you need to sit still during the lesson. You, you, just, you need to calm down. You need to shut up. And in my mind, I'm thinking like I'm looking at his dad. I'm looking at his older brother. I'm like, this guy has no shot. And I don't have what it takes to get him right. I, I mean, like I'm a kid myself. How is this going to work? He's going to end up in jail, I was convinced. Well, that kid David is now the youth pastor of that same church. (laughs) Isn't that weird? (laughs) I went back. I preached there uh, two years ago. It was the 20th anniversary of having been licensed by that church. It was a really special moment. The only people who were in the church that were there 20 years ago when I was there are the pastor, who was my first mentor in ministry, and David, the youth pastor, who was in my student ministry. And I just looked at David, who's married, has kids. He's just a sweet guy who loves Jesus and was really helping kids. And I looked at him and I said, it's amazing that you're here. <laughs> and he said, I know. <laughs> but then you start doing some self-awareness. And you think, it's amazing I'm here. It really is. And you and I, and perhaps even for yourself, well, you could come up with stories of people that you know, people in your church, people in your family, people in your friend circle. It's amazing they're in the kingdom because of where they were or where it looked like they were. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and I'd add, I think by implication, between religious or irreligious, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, so on and so on, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I don't care what your theology of how people become born again is. You and I may disagree on that, but let's agree on this. Our call is to preach the gospel indiscriminately to every man, woman, and child. That the gospel call would go out freely and universally. That God would save some. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lots of difficulty here, not because you are uh, obtuse or confused in yourself, but simply because we're finite creatures. We may never have the question settled within the church, within ourselves, of how this election predestination, human responsibility stuff works out, the dynamics of that. But we just simply trust that you are good and you are gracious and you are just. And anything that you do, whether we understand it or not, is good and just. We thank you for common grace. How many people get to enjoy so much the sweetness of life, the the beauty of creation, the wonders of imagination, the breadth and length of human creativity and industriousness. And we thank you most of all, Father, for the special grace of your Son. Father, for any in this room who do not believe, pray that you would grant them belief. This might be their decisive moment, the epicenter of their eternal life. Father, help us. Help us to lean into every gospel opportunity we experience. All for the glory of your Son, for the fame of his name. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.